Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas shape markets, ideas can change the world. And when I came uh, uh, across this Protective Intelligence Summit uh, hosted by Ontic, uh, I, I gotta tell you, I expected a event. I expected some good quality sharing. What I didn't expect is a presentation that quite frankly would change my world and how I thought about the opportunity for the risk, resilience and security industry. And it was uh, anchored against an incredible metaphor. So I wanted to take that keynote presenter and bring him in for a short conversation, but a great one, uh, Manish Mehta from Ontic. Uh, Manish, great having you on again. Ron, thank you for having me on again as well. Thank you for those kind words. Just, uh, and you'll see this in your blog introduction, but Manish, of course, heads the development, uh, is the one manifesting the Ontic vision uh, through product development. Um, so we have the guy who's got his hands on the wheel and Manish, let's, let's back up a second. You developed this powerful, powerful connection to history and some of the, uh, and the Cold War and of course, all the innovation that fell out of that for one very specific reason. Tell us about that story you told us at the summit. Absolutely, Ron. The, the genesis of it was meeting with our own customers, looking at the security industry, particularly the physical security industry. And I noticed something pretty striking. It was the siloed nature of people, process, and technology. The siloed nature of teams could be an executive protection team, it could be a facilities team, a corporate security team, a workplace violence team, having intelligence, but not being able to share that intelligence with each other. Again, due to teams that were disconnected, tools or systems or processes that were disconnected. So the analogy, Ron was thinking back to other infrastructures that have existed in history, where the sharing of systems, goods, services, people, would have transformed, uh, in our case, a nation. And that was the interstate highway system. So the short genesis of that story was in 1919, there was an army, army convoy of 50 vehicles that left the ellipse at Washington DC at the White House. And they wanted to run a very simple experiment, which was how easy would it be to drive across the country, across our nation? And the short story there is, it was an arduous and difficult journey that they hoped would take a week, maybe two, ended up taking 62 days wrong, and they averaged a speed of less than six miles per hour. And the Lieutenant Colonel, who was 28 years old, chronicled that entire journey, took photos and wrote up a report that went up to Congress. And the state rep representatives looked at that report and they said it was mildly interesting because they were happy with the infrastructure they had in their state and their major cities. And they really did not see a need to connect to their neighboring state and certainly did not want to fund infrastructure that would connect a nation. So that was really the, the genesis of this major pain that was being illustrated yet fell on deaf ears because everyone felt like they had the transportation logistics system that they needed. It wasn't until that Lieutenant Colonel uh, ended up in World War II he was promoted to a five-star general, was the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces in Europe. He was Dwight D. Eisenhower. And he saw the German Autobahn and 
said, this is exactly the movement that we need in the United States. Their ability to move troops and military and civilians across the entire nation just uh, galvanized his business case. And of course, the Cold War that was happening with the prospects of the Soviet Union or Russia dropping a bomb on the United States and how quickly could the US move troops and civilians and military equipment. And he then built that case for three years in from 1953 to 56, which became the uh, interstate highway system run and it transformed a nation. And the interstate highway system, you were so eloquent at the summit. <clears throat> the interstate highway system is incredibly organized and documented, very clear for people to chart a course, if you will, for their goods and services. Tell us a little bit about that numbering system. Yes, uh, before I do that, let me just talk briefly about the architecture. It is remarkable, you know, this interstate highway system is over 46,000 miles of this woven interconnected network. And for any network to work on, it needs to be consistent in every way imaginable. So think of, of you and I, or any of your listeners driving along the interstate, it's identical. This, the width of the roadways, the width of the shoulders, signage, on-ramps, off-ramps, heights of bridges, even the angle of the roadway to support water runoff is consistent across 46,000 miles. Well, so was the numbering system. And the numbering system's architecture is really uh, remarkable to me. If you think about Interstate 5 in California, which is an odd number that runs north or south, or Interstate I-35 that runs uh, from Texas on up, or I-95 on the East Coast, well, the reason for that numbering system is based on surface area. Surface area of the United States starting from the Pacific Ocean, if you were to drive 5% of that surface area inward, you're at Interstate 5. If you were 35% of the surface of the uh, country from the Pacific Ocean, you were at I-35. And if you were 95% of the way in, you were on I-95. Well, similarly, going north-south or south to north, from the bottom of the country, up 10% of the surface area was Interstate 10, up 40% was I-40, 80, I-80, all the way up to I-90. So it, what was remarkable about that is you knew exactly where you were from a transportation logistics perspective. If I said I-5, I-10, you knew you were in LA. If I said I-90, I-95, you knew you were in Boston. So run that remarkable, simple yet sophisticated architecture really transformed everything, especially from a transportation and logistics perspective. And from a organizational culture, and we're talking the United States now, it's commerce, it's private citizens, it's military. Uh, it, it anchors this whole organizational theory we have, and that is people need to keep it simple, well understood, easily, easily digested, easily consumed, and, and, and it's a brilliant architecture for the flow of goods and services. Completely agree. And Ron, think about this. We begin with the formation of this interstate and the transformation took hold pretty quickly. So that original business case of moving military equipment and personnel, the ability for people to not have to live in the city that they work in, they could live in the suburbs. So the mass movement to the suburbs uh, and suburbanization of the country. The freedom of movement in general, 
So the ability to see the country as a tourist and see all parts of the country. And then of course, transportation logistics, the ability to easily move goods and services uh, in every way manageable. In fact, everything you and I have ever purchased, including your listeners in our lifetime has touched the interstate highway system. So the thought process was, well, could we do the same for intelligence? If goods and services could transform a nation, if the ability to move people could transform a nation, could moving intelligence from team to team, organization to organization, system to system, transform physical security? So let's pause on that just for a second, because the term intelligence, of course, very, very uh, critical uh, to your company's business model. So you followed the way practitioners practice intelligence. You looked at how, you know, the people process and tools around it, and you formed a hypothesis. You could make that faster, better, uh, more effective. Uh, but let's just pause for a second. I, I, I may be overreaching on this, all of you listening, but help me understand just for a second. If companies rely on security to protect their people, in, in fact, their processes, uh, but also their assets, if, if that's what they're relying on, and, and the ability to proactively address those threats, not just react to them, but proactively address them, is intelligence. Is that a correct statement? That is a correct statement. So and then if you could go, go ahead, Ron. No, all I was saying, though, therefore, therefore, what we're really talking about, and it's a game changer, is the ability to provide predictive, proactive intelligence uh, that can actually uh, make my company more effective in the long run. Is, is that an overreach? It's not an overreach at all. If you have all of the data in one place, you can then start to build models to make it predictive. If you can start to connect to systems that detect threats as they come in or detect insights or information as they come in, you can become more proactive. And if you're predictive and proactive, then you can be more strategic with your intelligence and then the decisions that you make, the people, process, technology, personnel to get ahead of those threats and hopefully make nothing happen. Right. So the interesting extrapolation then is we have that database, that intelligence in the cloud now. It's in the cloud, which is a hub. There are a lot of inputs and outputs. Back to your information intelligence highway again, a lot of inputs and outputs. What you're constructing is not simply a way to acquire intelligence, but facilitate creatively and effectively how that intelligence is consumed, analyzed, and then acted upon. And therefore, there are a lot of other product companies, if you will, in this network. Tell me how your platform then acts in that information intelligence highway in the foreseeable future. Well, Ron, the very first thing we thought about and this is true for any company, is that you needed a central system to store that intelligence. So in our vernacular, we created a simple database that we put in the cloud. And in that database, you'd have all of the metadata 
that can collect and connect and start to build that predictive proactive system. And then from there, we started to look at the threat management journey. How can you detect threats? Some of it can be detected directly by Ontic, but there's, there are other companies, vendors, software solutions out in the market. There's also human intelligence. So the ability to detect and then store it in that system is critical. And then from detection, does any of that or do any of those threats manifest to a human, a threat actor? And can you research and try to understand the life pattern of that individual and everything that could present a risk? Then you tie that to an incident, an investigation or a case, again, going down to that depot, if you would, going down to that database to look for the connective tissue. And then finally conducting an assessment, a behavioral assessment or a broader assessment of risk and threat so that you would know now what, what actions do you take? But Ron, that's only possible if you begin with that central database in the cloud and then follow a process-based journey that could connect to your existing investments and infrastructure, or you can leverage one system, one platform with a set of tools that are uh, connected together. But also as a central hub, a central system storing this data and distributing it to all sorts of corporate actors, whether it's the legal team, the corporate security team, HR and so forth, you have it all available. All of them have the ability now to touch that data at any point in time along this whole journey you're talking about. Um, but there, there's also other data out there that maybe each one of them are storing as a silo. So how, how are you then helping to facilitate the exchange of that data and of course other processes? Absolutely. Another vector to think about are vulnerabilities. And many of these departments and organizations that you mentioned are capturing not only threat activity, but vulnerabilities as well around principles. So if you think about an asset or an executive, a person, a location that needs to be protected, what vulnerabilities might exist at sites when individuals or executives are traveling, if you're hosting an event, your supply chain, what data around the perimeter, whether it's devices or digital data uh, might exist. It could be from an HR system. It could be from a tip line. It could be from a CRM system that connects together. It could even be from your cyber tools realm. So all of these systems we've discovered have some aspect of either threat data or vulnerability data that they're capturing, but have captured historically in these silos that we mentioned. So if again, we could build a system, an intelligence highway system that could collect and co connect those threats that may exist, again, embedded or uh, located in systems that they use, whether they're antiquated systems like pen and paper, or they could be software-based systems. And if they can store them in one central database in the cloud, well, then we can connect those vulnerabilities and those threats together, almost like the interstate highway system, where you had a highway that ran east to west, as well as north to south. We could do the same with threats and vulnerabilities as well. This gets into the user experience then. If I'm an IT guy, <clears throat> I have one set of skills when I'm interfacing to a digital network. If I'm HR, I have a different set of skills. I'm a corporate security officer. 
So essentially the user experience, if you will, has to be incredibly simple to be able to collect the threats and vulnerabilities you're talking about. Tell me about that. Well, this is what makes the, to me, the interstate highway system and Eisenhower's vision and architecture so remarkable. Think about when you're driving on an interstate highway system, you don't even realize when you've crossed the state line because the road looks identical. Now, down at the surface level, when you get off of the highway, when you get into the local uh, road networks and road systems, if you notice, Eisenhower never made the interstate highway system a tolled road, that you had free and easy access from your local road networks and your local systems, if you would, to be able to take that truck and take that good and be able to move it right onto that interstate highway system. That became an inspiration for us at Ontic which is let's have one intelligence highway system, but not ignore the fact that you might have your local systems, you might have your local intelligence and data, but if we can bring that on one intelligence highway system, to your point, that has a common user interface, that has a common navigation paradigm, that has a common way to fetch and retrieve data or to store data and information, it's very similar to the interstate highway system. You don't even realize when you've passed from state to state or in the case of security from organization to organization. Now you have to have provisions in place to make sure that classified information or secured information or need to know doesn't get into the wrong hands. And you can manage that through software, through roles and permissions, but at least the interface is consistent and the movement of intelligence can be consistent as well. That's fantastic. So the concept, <clears throat> back to the interstate highway, the concept of on-ramps and off-ramps, and there is going to be data collected within those small cities and those large cities, and they may have tolls, they may have charges, if you will, based on the nature of the information, and they may have restrictions based on the privacy of that information. But the point is, if you do have that interstate constructed, the ability to get to it when and if needed, at the time of need, the point of need, the uh, and the nature of the need, uh, then the, uh, the, the, the exciting thing is we might have a new world of innovation when it comes to the nature of security. I completely agree, Ron. And, and we certainly don't purport here at Ontic to have covered it all, and nor will we as a software company. So we wanna be part of a federation there will be innovation run in this market that will uh, support this federated system of intelligence. And we'd love to connect to all of those systems and tools. So a call out to any technology company or vendor in this space, and certainly for your listeners who use other tools and other systems, an open federated intelligence highway system to use that metaphor in analog benefits everyone. So we certainly love to be the pioneers to build the infrastructure and have that common interface, but we certainly don't want this to be a closed system that can't accept intelligence from other systems and other tools. Uh, for those of you who have been in different markets over the years, and in particular, you folks in the security marketplace, a breath of fresh air there, uh, because the idea that the information should flow freely and not be... Uh, constrained by the business models of product manufacturers is fairly new concept in this industry. So it's, it's very much welcome. What, um, 
we talked a little bit in the past about the different constraints. For example, this concept of federation probably could accelerate if there was a way to move uh, certain behaviors, which are totally legitimate today, like the legal function, worried about the privacy of a uh, privacy of the data, as well as the liability of the data. HR officers, again, worried about the privacy of the data and the liability of the data. Do you see any forces right now that actually would cause the behaviors of people who are holding on to the data to change as an opportunity for them, not, not because they're being forced to change, but they see a different kind of opportunity beyond the risk? I think we live in a, in a complicated world where private companies have to take on more of the responsibility to protect their people and assets than ever before. And we're finding like-minded threats exist within like-minded industries. So you can take the entertainment industry, the retail industry, financial services industries, et cetera. They often share common threats, common threat actors, a common set of patterns that they could collaborate on together to keep their broader industry as a whole safe. So this notion of bridging intelligence, I think can and will happen over time, but it will require the general counsel, chief legal officer, CHRO to be a bit more comfortable. Now we recognize insider threats. So individuals that are still employed inside of a company, we, I can understand the, the risk or hesitancy in having that intelligence out in a federated community. But if there's an external threat actor or external set of threats that are common to an industry, I do think Ron, at some point, there will be an openness and willingness to federate that intelligence and share it among security teams. I'm, uh, I think you're absolutely right on that. I think there's one other thing though, and this is going to be interesting. I don't, I don't have an answer for it. Um, it'd be interesting, your reflection on it. I was asked recently on a vacation by an Australian, we're sharing a pool. <laughs> and the Australian asked me, what, as a, as a United States citizen, what do you think is the greatest threat to the world right now? And you can imagine all sorts of answers these days, depending on where your focus is. You could hear climate change. You could hear political instability. I said the greatest threat is the notion that democracy doesn't work in the new world. That is, it's too slow. It's cumbersome. It's worried too much about privacy and human rights and uh, the need for speed is, is becoming ever more pronounced. I said, so the real creativity that's needed by democratic institutions is how to solve that problem. And sorry to extrapolate and go may, way beyond the purview of this discussion on a platform, but it touches upon what you're facing here today. We have very real concerns about preserving our democratic institutions, the notion of privacy, which you know many of these legal officers and HR officers and others are concerned about, but at the same time, the need for speed. Uh, you see anything bridging the gap there? I do. I, I think the, the risk in uh, privacy, especially for citizens, often come with single points of failure. So you take what's happening, let's say, with facial recognition and the controversy surrounded that. 
That's often because it's a single point of data or information that's being looked at. And in isolation, you could lead, it could lead you to the wrong conclusion. I do think if you can leverage technology to federate more intelligence, to provide more context, so it's not a single point of failure based on a single data point, but it's an aggregated view, uh, that, then I think that mitigates some of the controversy and risk with privacy because you're taking a more broader view and pattern-based view of data. So that's spoken from a technologist, but, but I do think there's opportunity to mitigate, mitigate public perception of that privacy risk. Have your privacy and still eat the information. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. It'll be great to do. This has been a great conversation with Manish Mehta of Antic, uh, transforming the world in their own unique way. Manish, I can't thank you enough. Thank you, Ron, as always.